Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. I wonder if we have any gardeners in the congregation today. Oh, excellent. Some very enthusiastic gardeners. Very good. I myself have tried my hand at growing things in the past. In one house where I lived one summer in the backyard, I put some soil in one of those three-by-three fabric containers called a smart pot, sort of like a small raised bed. Is You know, it, it's cheating, obviously. I, you know, it'd be better to build a, a real raised bed, but what can you do? I'm a transient uh, kid. Uh, so uh, the first year I planted a few herbs, you know, rosemary, basil, and so forth, and it was reasonably successful. So the next year I tried tomatoes. I worked hard to put up a tall netting all the way around the bed trying to keep critters out, and I did my best to make sure it got the right amount of sun and watered it faithfully. And at first it was working well, right? The vines sprouted, uh, I put up a trellis for them to climb up, and before too long, I had my first little tomato blossoms. But as they grew, I noticed a strange black spot beginning to develop on the bottom of all the tomatoes, a place where it was rotting, as far as I could tell, for no good reason. I looked up what to do and tried various things. More watering, less watering. They said it had something to do with the moisture level, so I tried that. I looked at the roots to make sure it wasn't damaged uh, and before I managed to figure out the problem, I woke up one morning and the deer had managed to wiggle their noses in between my netting and plucked off every single one of those tomatoes. So my experiment was over for that summer. I learned a lot of lessons about gardening in that experience, but the main one that, that I learned is that growing things is hard. I suspect this is one reason that Jesus so often uses in his teaching and his preaching agricultural metaphors, agrarian metaphors, to illustrate his mission, his points. The one who came to preach the word of God, he says, is like a sower who went out to sow and scattered his seed on all different kinds of land. The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed or like laborers in a vineyard. The fields, Jesus tells his disciples, are already ripe for harvest. These were, of course, very natural metaphors to use for people who must have spent quite a bit of their time around either farms or farmers. But very often when Jesus deploys this kind of imagery, he does it in a way that really seems to emphasize the difficulty of this mission on which he has embarked and on which he sends his disciples as well. We certainly get that sense in our story today. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Pray, therefore, that the Lord of the harvest would send workers into this harvest. There's going to be labor involved, in other words. What is it about the pulling in of this particular harvest that's going to be laborious? Well, before we can see exactly why this harvest is difficult, that Jesus is sending his disciples on, we should look more closely at what exactly the work is to which Jesus is setting them, the mission that he's sending them on. He tells them, essentially, if you kind of strip away all of the peripheral instructions that he gives in this passage, he tells them really to do two things. 
He tells them, whatever city you go into, heal the sick and proclaim the kingdom. Heal the sick who are in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. Those two things. Heal the sick, proclaim the kingdom. These, as it happens, are two primary things that grace does. We often think of grace in the church as simply a kind of disposition that God has towards us after we've done something wrong, an attitude of undeserved favor with which he regards us even in our sin. And that's certainly not wrong. Forgiveness is absolutely a species of grace. But grace isn't just a disposition on God's part. It's also an operation, an activity. Grace does things. And two key things that it does are summarized in this mission that Jesus gives. Grace heals and grace elevates. Heals and it elevates. The graces that God gives in Jesus Christ, he gives through our membership in his body by way of baptism, through our reading and praying of Holy Scripture, through our nuptial union with him in Holy Communion. If we receive these graces with an open heart, it first heals us of our deformities, the deformities of our will, our habitual inclinations to sin and selfishness. But then it also raises us up to participation in the divine life of supernatural love that Jesus calls the kingdom of God. It enables us to taste the sweetness of an interior joy poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And it moves us to pour ourselves out in radical, generous, self-giving love to others. This is the labor to which Jesus calls his messengers, the labor of healing and elevating humanity, whether that humanity is in ourselves or in those around us. It's a tall order. And if there's one thing that Jesus makes clear about this work on which he's sending his disciples today, it's that they are very likely to encounter resistance. This is where we discover exactly why this harvest is going to be particularly laborious. Rotting tomato blossoms and nibbling deer are nothing compared to the difficulties that their harvesting work is sure to face. I send you out as lambs in the midst of wolves, he says. You will go places where they will not welcome you, and often they will explicitly reject you. Elsewhere, he tells them that they would be dragged before governors and kings, that their own families might even turn against them for the sake of the name of Jesus. Where does this come from, this resistance to the word God speaks in Jesus? Well, it comes, I think, at least from two fronts, two fronts that correspond to these two operations of grace. First, where grace comes to heal, it encounters addiction. Sin has a way of making itself feel like a comfort zone for us. It's like a drug. It promises a quick fix to our deepest yearnings, and we keep coming back to it. It seems to give us a sense of control over things. It gives us this illusion that we are in charge of our lives. Why, for instance, do I tell lies about others or about myself? Why do I gossip? Well, it's often to try to control what other people think, what they think about me, what they think about other people, so that I can get ahead in their eyes or in the world. Why do I 
hoard my stuff when there are other people right around me who are in need of that stuff? Why do I try to keep it all to myself? Well, it's because I want control over my future, right? I, I, I want to have this security that I'm in charge of about what's going to happen to me. Why do I indulge in pleasures that I know are forbidden, except that I'm, I'm trying to keep control over my own happiness, my own fulfillment, my own enjoyment of the world? And if I defer those pleasures, because I, re I resist indulging them, then I would have to give up my own control over that and trust that God wants to give me something better down the road. Sin makes us addicted to this sense of control. And it manage manages sometimes so to harden our hearts that we don't want to be healed. Because healing might be painful, ripping us away from what has become a seemingly reliable sedative. Second, where grace comes to elevate, it encounters the resistance of sloth. Now, sloth is one of those lesser thought about seven deadly sins, the cutest of the seven deadly sins someone said to me uh, after the previous service. And the reason they said that is because when we think of sloth, if we think of it at all, is because we think of the uh, arboreal neotropical mammal, right? That cute little creature who hangs around in trees and doesn't move very fast and is called a sloth because it just seems to be pretty lazy. And that's what we think of when we think of sloth, just sheer laziness. But the proper sense of sloth, the kind of theological sense of sloth, is a bit more precise than that. Sloth, in the strict sense, means failing to live up to the high calling, to the full realization of our humanity that God has invited us to in Christ. It's shrinking back from God's desire to elevate us to the glories of his kingdom, his desire to share with us his own divine life, his will to make us gods through union with God the Son, partakers of his own divine nature, as 1 Peter says. Let me give you a very meager illustration of this from everyday life. When I was a young kid, my family often went on vacation to Bush Gardens Roller Coaster Park down in Williamsburg. And the first year we went, I was, I don't know, seven years old, something like that. The only roller coaster I was tall enough to ride at that point was the Big Bad Wolf, the Big Bad Wolf. I was very intrigued by the Big Bad Wolf, but my first reaction to the su suggestion that I might actually ride this was, no way. This is too big, too scary, way too high up in the air. Thank you, Dad, but I think I'll keep my two feet right here on the ground. My older brother had no such qualms. He was taller than me. Not anymore, I'm taller than him now, but he was taller than me at the time. And he immediately hopped not only on the Big Bad Wolf, but also on the Loch Ness Monster, right? And the, the golden uh, dragon fire, something like that. The one that had a, a loop where you could actually go upside down. No way I was ever going to do that. Uh, so he was prodding me and poking me, and my dad was trying to encourage me to do this for days to get on the Big Bad Wolf. So finally, probably the last day we were there, after several false starts where I would go into the car and then say, no, wait, I'm not going to do it, and jump off. Finally, they got me to persevere and to go along. And when the ride finished, I immediately wanted to get back in line and go again. And then I wanted to go again and again. And now their problem was getting me off the ride. What's the point? 
God sometimes calls us to heights of virtue and love that seem too good to be true, too high to be safe, too risky for our feeble strength. And we're often inclined to think, thanks for thinking of me, Lord, but I think I'll keep my two feet safely on the ground. Think of Moses, right? Lord, send someone else. So how do we overcome this resistance that we find in ourselves and in the world to the healing and elevating power of grace? Well, resistance to this power of grace isn't overcome, first of all, by material stability. Jesus makes this clear in our reading today. It's tempting for us to think about our spiritual lives that if I could just secure this new job, if I could just get settled into this new house, if I could just finish this project, this dissertation maybe, then I can start making time for God, right? Then I can start making time for prayer, reading my scriptures more, getting more involved at church. I know I've had these thoughts, especially about the dissertation, but it's very tempting to think that, right? If I could just get things in order materially, then I'll have more time for God. But Jesus dashes those thoughts pretty directly. You don't need a money bag, he tells the 70, nor a knapsack, nor even shoes. I'm calling you to this work right now, right as you are, with all of your warts, with all of your mess, with everything that's going on in your life. I can meet you there, and I can work with you there to affect this healing and elevating power of grace. Right in your life, right in the daily tasks that you have, I'm with you there, and you can be with me there. You don't have to get everything else in order for God's grace to heal you and lift you up. But the extra surprising thing that Jesus says in today's reading is that resistance to God's grace is also not overcome directly by our own spiritual efforts. 72, returned to the Lord with joy saying that even the demons were subject to them in his name. And Jesus responds, yes, that's true. I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions, and nothing will hurt you. But don't rejoice at that. Don't rejoice that the demons are subject to you. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. What's he saying? Well, he's saying that the power that enables us to bring that healing and elevating grace into our souls and into the world doesn't come from ourselves. And if we're paying too much attention to our own spiritual maturity or our own spiritual labors, then we're completely missing the point. It's not that we shouldn't do those things. It's not that we shouldn't pray or read scripture or avail ourselves of the sacraments. Of course we should. These are means of grace that God has given us. But the thing is, they're not about us. They're about God's promises what God has promised to do for us and in us. It's a bit like a child learning to ride a bike. When she starts moving, she's tempted to look down at her feet on the pedals in excitement that she's finally going, she's finally got her balance, she's finally moving. But if she does that, she looks down at her feet instead of off at the road, up at the road, then she's liable to fall over again, liable to lose her balance. She's got to look up in order to keep going. And that's what we must do too. We must lift our eyes to the hills from where our help comes. 
God invites us to this gracious work of healing and elevating humanity, both in ourselves and those around us. We can only do this if we fix our eyes on his everlasting promises. I have written your name in heaven, he says to us. Cling to that word of life and hope. And you might find all resistance to his healing and elevating grace promptly trampled under your feet. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.